James, as a letter, sounds a lot like Jesus. Uh, for one thing, we've been on this series in this letter of James, and it's a real letter by a real guy to real people with real issues really trying to follow Jesus, and it gets really intense a lot. But as we've gone through this series, and even as we were doing the research leading into it, uh, one of the things that just stands out is James sounds a lot like Jesus. Like, when he writes, it sounds like what Jesus would also say, which some of that logical. He's Jesus' little brother. A lot of exposure makes sense. He's even like a leader in the early church. And so, of course, like as you're leading the church, leading the way of Jesus, like that group of people makes sense. But even beyond that, like if you read the Sermon on the Mount and then we're like, hmm, how would I try to unpack that a little bit more for some people? You might come up with the letter of James, right? Or even the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. Like if you really unpack that, it could actually just sound like James again, it's why, uh, or one of the reasons why, we started this series with that simple statement, I follow Jesus. And then we took a couple of weeks to unpack what we do with that. This week, we're going to make a shift. Uh, and it's this shift that mirrors what happens in the letter of James. Because at James chapter 3, he kind of makes a right-hand turn. Going from, how do we unpack the I follow Jesus, to how do we actually get a church to get along? Because for them... They had some tensions, and we've highlighted those the last couple of weeks, right? They had an issue with favoritism, uh, right? Like treating people differently based on what they could do for you. That's not good. But then also they had this problem where people were pretending to care, right? Faith without works is dead is an aggressive thing to have to say to somebody, but that's why that had to come out, because there were these people that are like, okay, I'm a part of the community of faith. I'm saved by grace. This is all going well. I need to do nothing, and everything's just going to be wonderful. I need to not, like, deal with that. And James is like, no, you actually have to care. Just like a car with a dead engine is kind of useless, so is faith that doesn't actually affect how you live. But they were dealing with a lot of problems, and so starting uh, this week, what we're covering James 3, and then as we go through the next three weeks, the focus is how to actually get the church to get along. It's a very good thing that we as, like, the American church, like Big C American church, like, there's a heavy, heavy focus on reach out, reach out, reach out, evangelize, bring people in, go tell people that don't know about Jesus, bring them in, bring them in, bring them in. That's a good thing, and I hope that that never changes about us. But we also need to take a step back and say, okay, what kind of community are we inviting people into? Because if the community or the message is compelling enough on its own, it's not that hard to get people on board. The gospel in and of itself is extremely compelling. Sometimes we need to look at ourselves and say, okay, what do we need to do? Because it is not just the audience in James that has this issue of like, okay, we got to figure this out. But for all of us and all of us just that exist as Christians, we need to constantly work on how do we get along the best. Quick show of hands. How many of you have a Gmail account? Okay, leave that in the air. Uh, how many of you have a friend, coworker, or sent an email to somebody that has a Gmail account recently? One, two, just about everybody. Okay. Did you know that Gmail never had to do public marketing? All they did was provide a superior email service for free. Right? Because there was a time and a place we actually had to pay for email, uh, if you don't remember that time. But all they did was provide an amazing service 
for free and word of mouth on its own is how we all ended up with Gmail accounts. That's incredible. Compelling things have a power all their own. And so when we have a gospel that is compelling all its own, then we look at ourselves and say, are we equally as compelling? This week in the How to Get the Church to Get Along package in James, words matter. Let's look at where he picks up in James chapter 3. He says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's kind of counterintuitive. Usually we're like, promote everyone as far as we can. He's like, not many of you should attempt this. Right? But first of all, like we get this naturally. Right? A lot of you are professors or teachers or administrators or former administrators in schools. Like we expect teachers to be ahead of their students. When you go to teach math, you should know it better than your students. When you go to teach anything else at a school level, it's assumed that you know the material really, really well and are capable of teaching that. Right? We know this. We would be appalled if any teacher were not at a different level than their students. But even more than that, it's saying this, like, God has a very high standard for anyone who will come to teach. That's why we have standards for anything that makes it onto this platform. It has to go through a whole process even just to get here, let alone be said by anybody here. But this is also why we keep this value in our systems, right? If you want to be a group leader, a facilitator, like a class or a study or teach something, like, there's an application for that here. Right? It's not because we feel like being miserly czars and control things. It's because we're held to a high standard. It's because we need to keep that standard. Same reason you apply to be a teacher at a job and in the interview. Same process. Interestingly enough, that's where James starts with how to get the church to get along. Like, if you're going to lead, first of all, be aware of the consequences of that. Because if you lead uh, this bottom line of being judged more strictly, then applies to you. But also... He starts at the top, but then moves right on to the everybody. So he moves on forward with this. We all stumble in many ways. Lord, that's true. Anyway, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. I am a sarcastic person. When in doubt, I choose jokes. But also, I'm working on this thing of trying to be more genuine in what I say because this is difficult. I try to be more genuine in what I say, and even then, sometimes it really backfires. Um, So we had like a staff half-day training a couple of weeks ago because, as it turns out, we hired half the state of New York to work on our staff, and half of us are new, including myself. And so some of it was like we actually like need to get these staff values going together, but also actually make this thing work, get some training, and then also get to know who each other is that are on this team. Uh, and so one of the things that we did is we took the working genius assessment, which is just like, hey, where in the creative process are you good at things? Right? Everything from like creating ideas and coming up with those kind of things to like discerning it and like galvanizing a team around it if it's a good idea, all the way to actually like the implementation and like the tenacity to actually make it happen, as well as encourage people along the way. And so as we were introducing ourselves, we also had to give our two highest and two lowest. And then if we felt like saying anything else, we could. And so it gets to me, and I do the other, like, introductory questions and things, stuff about my story, uh, and we get to this working genius, and the two highest for me are on the, like, 
actually seeing things done and like getting a team around it. Uh, I need help when it actually comes up to creative ideas, as it turns out. But the lowest one for me by far is encouraging other people. And I did not want to just leave that out there because I'm like, hey, one of the pastors here, I suck at encouragement. Didn't want to just like leave that out there. And so what I was trying, I was desperately trying to be more genuine, like so much. And, but what I said was, I struggle to encourage other people because I fundamentally refuse to say things that are not true. <laughs> then I heard it. <laughs> And I was like, so what I mean by that is like, like, I really don't like platitudes, like the generic, like, oh, you're great, you're good, you're wonderful, you're amazing, you're awesome, right? Like, I hate that. Also, there's more words in the English language besides awesome, right? I, I just hate doing that. And so like, what I try to do is like, find something specific about what somebody did, highlight that, and then actually be like, that thing, I want to celebrate that. But that, but like the, I refuse to say things that aren't true, had already left my mouth, this has actually turned into a staff joke now. If you want to hear nice things, go to Trey. <laughs> but we get this. This is hard. It is difficult to keep a lid on what we say with any reasonable amount of accuracy. Me included. And so we're going to go on a nice little journey together because as it turns out, James puts this as one of the first things he addresses and actually to make the church get along. That's how important words are. As I was preparing and like working through James chapter 3, I had a moment that I realized uh, James is a better preacher than me because the example he gives, uh, or examples, plural, are better than mine. So I'm just going to like use his and then explain what he gives. Fair? Awesome. Great. Glad you're with me. You didn't really have a choice, but I appreciate that you are voluntarily with me. All right. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set afire by a small spark. Horses and ships and forest fires, oh my. But the horse one lands for me uh, particularly the most of these examples. Because when Abby and I first got married, uh, we were too poor to afford rent. Uh, and so what we did is we rented from some farmers uh, that had corn and pigs and horses, among other things. Uh, and the way that I kept rent down was Abby was student teaching at the time, and so multiple mornings a week I would go over there, do some chores, uh, and that would actually... Oh, what, make us owe them less money. Uh, and so we'd do that several mornings a week, which if you've never mucked a horse stall at four in the morning, I would encourage you to do so. Not because it's fun, but because I want you to share in my misery. <laughs> but one of the things I also got to do was actually train with the horses and work with them. And so this was my horse. This is Babe. Uh, by the way, I have no clue what possessed us to stick a yellow lab on her that day. Uh, but behold, dog on horse. But Babe is an American paint horse. Uh, they're very, very useful for especially beginners because they're very, like, mild-mannered. Like, they're not going to harass you about basically anything. They're chill. And also, uh, the farmer's wife was like, yeah, let's give the new guy the chill horse. So this was mine. But also, American paint horses 
are very, very durable. They don't have a lot of chronic illnesses, issues, anything like that uh, to speak of. They're ridiculously strong, right? I don't, you probably can't tell scope of this, but also Babe's head when she's standing up like that is taller than mine. She's huge, strong, and pure muscle. But Babe tops out at 55 miles an hour, sprinting. I chose this picture not just because it's funny to have a dog on a horse, but this little bit right here is actually the bit, and that's connected to reins that go up on the horse. Now, the amount of force that even at a gallop that it takes to turn babe is a pinky. It's actually bad technique to fully grab on both hands full on reins and yank on them. Uh, that will actually hurt the horse quite badly, which, by the way, if you watch movies, and you're like, man, the horses always seem upset at something, it's because they're being rode poorly, right? Don't do this. That's bad. All you actually have to do to turn babe is you stick all your fingers behind the reins and you just lay your pinkies over them. You want to go right? A little press. You want to go left? A little press. Big, huge horse, little tiny pinky. That's all it takes. Your life and the influence you have can be enormous. Little tiny tongue. You can either make it or break other people. But James wants to really stick on this. Because he's actually going to extend one of these examples he gives. The tongue is also a fire, because apparently forest fire wasn't enough. The tongue's also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures, are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I'm a big fan of tackling difficult issues head-on and not avoiding them. So let's talk about hell. There is actually not one unifying word in the Bible uh, that gets translated as hell. There's at least five, and then two of those float to the top in the New Testament that get used. Uh, one is Hades, so if you, you've seen uh, the Hercules Disney movie, like the gray guy with the blue fire hair, yeah, Hades, uh, that'd be that, uh, like that neutral place of the dead, like everybody dies, ends up in one spot, and like it's unpleasant, but like it's kind of weird, like that's the word Hades, but that's not the word used here. The word used here is Gehenna, uh, which actually, if you go from Hebrew, which is originally where the word's from, and then you loan it out to a couple different languages, that being Greek and then English, it becomes Gehenna. Um, but originally, this is actually a reference to a place name, uh, and it's actually the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehinnom if you prefer. So, this is an artist's rendering of New Testament Jerusalem. Here's the enormous temple that fit like 22 football fields. That's where that is. Uh, this valley on the right is the Kidron Valley, and then the mount behind it is the Mount of Olives. And so if you're like, man, where is Jesus when, like, on his last night, he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, like, let this cup pass me by, gets betrayed by Judas, right, and he gets arrested, that whole interaction that happens on this hill off to the right back here. This valley, though, on the left and kind of in the middle, this is the Valley of Hinnom. What that was used for is a sewage dump 
And then any excess trash from the city that they couldn't deal with themselves, they would throw in there. Eventually that would pile up so stinking high that they had to actually burn it to get it back down to normal levels, rinse, repeat. And so they would just add the sewage and garbage, they'd light it on fire. Sewage and garbage, light it on fire. Sewage and garbage, light it on fire. What was said of this place is that it is constantly smoldering, smells terrible, and always seems to be on fire. That's the picture of hell in this passage. And James is saying, when we get careless with our words, we inflict hell on earth on other people. Did you know it's not just an emotional thing either? Like, yeah, we insult people and it hurts their feelings, or like, it change, like we use words to like express spiritual reality and like sing, we do that like we just did. But also, words affect more than the metaphysical. Words affect more than the emotional. Do you know that words actually change the physical world that people experience? There are two interesting psychological studies done recently on this. Uh, the first one in 2019 by Ritter and some others found that how your doctor describes a procedure actually changes the amount of pain you experience. So, if they described it neutrally, like, hey, let's say we're do talking about like a knee surgery, and we're, they're just like, hey, we're going to go in there, we're going to clean it out, here's what we're going to do, we're going to move on, end of day. You experience a certain amount of pain, and they called it neutral, just because that's a pretty bland explanation. If they described it in negative terms, as in, this is one of the less pleasant procedures we do, it's a little bit difficult, there's some work on it, rehab is going to take some time, the actual physical amount of pain you experience goes up. If they use a pain word, for example, this procedure is going to hurt. The amount of physical pain you will experience spikes. All that just because of word choice. This works the opposite way, too. Uh, Jaffrey and Saliba, in 2021, they did a study on the effect of encouragement on physical performance. Um, and so what they did was they obviously had the neutral, and so they took two groups of people, one totally healthy, one that suffered chronic issues, including like deteriorating ankles. And then they ran them through sets of physical tests. Obviously, the healthy people did better. Then they just added one-liners of encouragement, like minimal effort as in, just go as far as you can or you can do it. Both groups performed better than they did. Not a surprise. But in one specific example, the chronically injured and deteriorating perform the same as healthy people with one line of encouragement. Words can change physical reality. It matters what we say. It's not just one of those things where it's like, ah, oh, I said something dumb, oh well, we'll move on. No, it really affects things. But also, it's not just James that thinks so. Let's talk about Jesus for a second. This is a straight quote out of one of his sermons in Matthew 12. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. If it matters to Jesus... And it matters to James, and it's constantly coming up in Scripture. We have to pay attention to it. 
Do our words sound like Jesus? James lived this out. When he goes to write the letter of James or preach in whatever he's doing, he sounds a lot like Jesus. But do we sound a lot like Jesus? Because words really, really affect one another. Words are the primary way that we communicate to each other. So much so that we created sign language so that people who are deaf could still communicate with words when we can't actually say them to one another. We write them down so that we have words. You'd be hard-pressed to find something more important in the practical day-to-day following of Jesus than what your words are going to do. If only we had a place where we could work on this. If only we had a spot with some other Christians around that would hold us accountable to that. Right? Because it doesn't really work so well when you just like walk up to a friend like, hey, are the words I'm using right now good? They're like, I don't know. You said like one sentence at me and it was, was the sentence good? Like, sure. But also, you know that something has seeped itself down into the depths of your being when it's not just when you're intentionally doing something, but when your autopilot changes. So we need an environment that our autopilot can be on display for other Christians, but also so that we can continue to be formed more and more like Jesus. Thank you for asking for that. Um, So that's why we have groups. That's why we have classes. Like, first of all, there is a group for just about anything. You want to go for a run? There's the people that do that. If you want to, uh, if you're like working on like, okay, what does life after kids look like? Like we're older, we're still married, but our kids are out of the house. There's a group for that. If you're like, man, I want to be a better dad. There's a group for that. If you're like, hey, I just want to be with people that are my age and life stage and have maybe kids the same age as me. There's a group for that. Beyond that, we have classes which are signing up out in the lobby today. Like if you are at a spot where you're like, okay, And I apologize in advance, I'm going to forget something. I don't know which one yet. I apologize. I will fix it later. They're all online, by the way, uh, easternhills.org slash classes. They're all there. But, like, if you're like, man, I just want to get with some other ladies and, like, actually, like, read something. First of all, there's one on Exodus. There's one on Philippians. There's uh, Risen Motherhood. It's like, oh, okay, there's a dad group, but okay, there's a mom class. Excellent. If you're like, man, I want to actually figure out how to be better with my words uh, in, when I get really, really uncomfortable and I'm talking about something serious, no reason to hide. Check it out. If you're like, man, I want to not just like be better with my words, but know the word. Hey, look, we're doing how to read the Bible. That'll be happening. If you're like, man, I want to be better. Maybe I'm in a really committed relationship uh, or engaged or we're married and really trying to figure this thing out. Maybe trying to work on it. Grace-filled marriage. It'll be run on Sundays. If you're like, hey, I want to start a conversation about Jesus. Starting point. There are so many opportunities. Pick one. But let's say that every single grouping class that is meeting somehow meets when you are not free, somehow meets when you're not available. Find another Christian. Find somebody in your life that will actually look you in the eyeball and tell you when you've made a mistake. If you need to go find your honest friend, go do that. But we cannot do faith alone. It just doesn't work. Find someone in your life who's willing to pour into you and willing to hold you to the same standard that you're going to hold them to. For the love of all that is holy, don't try this thing alone. Loneliness is bad. Together, good. 
You see, James is not done, because when you're like, wow, he talked about hell, that's intense. Um, as it turns out, it's going to get a little bit more tense, but we're going to get through this together. But I need you to see this, where he goes with it. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in our God's likeness? Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? Brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. How are we going to sum up that paragraph? It would be what you say is who you are. Right, because he started with, if we come into church and we sing that Jesus is enough, which is a beautiful song, and like that opening one-liner like got Wendell and I as we were like going through rehearsal, like, woof, good Lord, I'd trade it all for Jesus. Great. If we can sing that, but then we go on the lobby and like, you know what so-and-so said? I don't like them. No. It shouldn't happen. If an apple tree starts producing oranges... We don't call that an apple tree anymore. If a fig tree starts producing apples, we don't call it a fig tree anymore. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Somebody you and I both know said that. But see, this brings up an interesting worldview problem because I felt the tension just go up, okay? I hear you. This brings up an interesting worldview problem. I got to point out to us. See, because to an American, I am what I feel. By the way, if you did not realize this about our culture, this is where we are. This is why you can identify as whatever you would like to, and we all have to go along with it. This is also seeping into church when we get the uh, just me and Jesus thing, because I feel connected to Jesus, so why do I need other people? Or why we tend to value certain things over others, like, Well, I like prayer, but it's a lot of work to read the Bible. Like, I don't feel like it. It's part of this American way of viewing the world of I am what I feel. See, a Greek worldview says I am what I say. Which, New Testament, Greek world, uh, written in Greek. That's also why these uh, famous philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, they were really into philosophy and what you say because they assumed that was who you were. A Hebrew mindset, which is just about everybody who wrote the Bible, minus one, says, I am what I do. This is also why the last two weeks were probably uncomfortable, right? Because faith without works is dead. Don't show favoritism. Would a Christian do that? Like, come on. That's James chapter two. It's an I am what I do kind of chapter. James 3 flips from what worldview he's talking about because, as it turns out, he's very good multiculturally. He's like, you are what you say. By the way, these are worldviews. One's not right over and against the others. But also, they shouldn't be different. Ideally, I do one thing, I say the same thing, and I eventually feel the same way about it. By the way, it does not work in reverse. Uh, You can't feel your way into an act. Uh, Like, I will treat her better when I feel like it. No. 
<laughs> if you'd like more unpacking of that, Grace-Filled Marriage is a lovely class. But I'll read my Bible when I feel like it. Maybe. I'll go to the gym when I feel like it. Maybe. I'll get a different job when I feel like it. Maybe. I'll stop eating so much dessert when I feel like it. Nope, because you never will. But you act your way into a feel. That's how humans are wired. What you do over time becomes the way that you see the world and feel about it. What you do consistently over time changes the way you talk about things. What you do over time changes the way you feel about things. If you would like your emotions to change, give yourself a month of intentionality doing things, they will follow. But it's at this point that James uses the first half of what we call chapter 3 to point out that we are indeed what we say. The logic in James is that if we're Christians, we should sound like Jesus. So I've just got to put this to us. Do we sound like Jesus? On average, if we totaled up everything that we've said this week, did it sound like Jesus? Because, by the way, anytime that we ask ourselves these questions, the immediate temptation is to be like, well, over the whole course of my life, let me highlight the things I've done well. Sure. But how about this week? Did we sound like Jesus? When we show up here to church and when we're preaching, do we as a team sound like Jesus? Hopefully, that's the standard. When we're here, like, in these seats, and we maybe do meet and greet time, do we sound like Jesus? When we get out to the lobby, will we sound like Jesus? In the car, to and from church, will we sound like Jesus? The way that we talk to our friends, our family, our teachers, our students, our classmates, the way that we talk to our boss, the people that work for us, the way that we talk to other people that we might see through a camera, does it all sound like Jesus? If we actually gave ourselves five seconds without making excuses and we each asked ourselves, do I sound like Jesus? Would the answer we find be palatable? Because this is the call. Because I follow Jesus was never meant to just be something we say one time. I follow Jesus was never meant to be something that only affects one aspect of our life. I follow Jesus is meant to be something that changes everything about us, our intentionality, and even down to our autopilot. And so I've got to leave this question on us. Do we sound like Jesus? We should pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for a moment to hit pause on our lives and take an honest accounting of ourselves. God, for each one of us, I, I know even within myself, sometimes it's just like tempting to allow the 
better parts to come to the surface or the parts that we want to, to be seen, or even when it comes to just talking to you with ourselves, sometimes it's just difficult to be honest. But God, bring to us and bring to our minds honesty. Help us take an honest assessment of where we're at. Help us take an honest moment and recognize where we're at, what we're doing, how we're doing, and what we sound like. From there, transform us one degree each day closer to you. Help us all to be people that one day someone could mistake what came out of our mouths for being said by Jesus himself. Not that we want to steal his authority, not that we want to make ourselves better or more influential or any nonsense like that, but God, help us to be so close to you that we understand and actually speak the things that you would to other people. Help us live lives that you would live if you had our shoes. Help us be people that are wholly committed to not just the statement, I follow Jesus, but to the life that follows it. Give us the space that we need to accomplish this. Go before us to the places we need to go. God, if there's something we need to do, help us do it. If there's something we need to feel, help us feel it. And Lord, if there is things for us to say, help us say them. God, following you has the most meaning, significance, and by far the best payoff of anything we could do. So help us along the way honor the journey. Give us the strength we need, the friends we need, the environments we need, and the hope we need. Give us the energy that we need. Because at the end of the day, we want to still be people that sound like it and can say, I follow Jesus. All this we pray in his name. Amen.